Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Athletics Life Stories with your host Chris Broadbent. Met up with Stella McCartney, had to wear like a bra and the knickers and do a jog on the spot to make sure the knickers weren't, you know, you weren't wearing dental floss. I've never had that before, but I felt at peace. Like I thought, I'm going to run it this way and I'm going to pick up a medal. And I remember just spending about 10 minutes in the toilet, absolutely sobbing my heart out. Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with myself, Chris Broadbent. Today I'm joined by Joe Mersch. Uh, a multi-talented individual. She's worked as a professional singer and model, and she was a pretty good runner too. Over 800 metres, she competed at the Olympic Games and Commonwealth Games, but her career highlight was winning bronze at the World Indoor Championships. Now retired, long retired, she's settled in New Zealand. Joe, it's good to see you. Oh, Chris, you haven't changed. It's great <laughs> to be here. Thank you so much. It's, it's so nice to um, relay the life that I used to have. You know, <laughs> like you, we're parents and uh, we need to go back there sometimes, don't we? And just reminisce. So thank you. We do. No problem. No, looking forward to it. Yeah. So how long have you been in New Zealand for now? I've been in New Zealand for four years. Yeah. So we moved here as a family in, in September 2018 and had a great year in 2019. And then, of course, COVID hit. Um, so it was actually really good to be it was it was yeah it was a mixed emotion it was really good to be in New Zealand during the 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 height of the pandemic but it was also really anxious for me to to know that you know all of my family were in London and Europe Mm. was having a really tough time um but but things are looking up globally now I, I I like to think so um yeah four years and um I kind of still yeah, I, I feel I still feel like a Londoner because I'm a Cockney and I'm always going to be a Cockney and I'm never going to say yogurt. I'm always going to say yogurt and I'm always going to say butter. OK, <laughs> so things don't change there. But I do feel a bit Kiwi. My kids have got Kiwi accents, which is really bizarre, especially when our boy says, Mum, can I have some butter? And I'm like, it's not butter, it's butter. 
come on, son. <laughs> You'll get a clip in here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a great place to live. It's an amazing place to bring up children. And I'm really, really happy and, and lucky to be here. Good. Yeah, Good. It's you, great. You look, you're looking well and healthy. Good. So let's talk about talk about children. Let's go back to your childhood, Danny. You grew up in Essex, didn't you? Or in London, you say? Tell us in, about Yeah, I will tell you about my childhood. Um mm. Yeah, so I grew up um, in London, in East London, in a place called Leytonstone. Leytonstone um, back then, it's very gentrified now. I recently went back to London and it's got all posh coffee shops and books, you know, like book book um, like uh, bookshops and fancy butchers. But when I grew up, it was it was like you know, a bit of a dump, but um, an amazing community. We grew up on a bit of a council estate quite a nice council estate when people say council estates it was it was a, an estate full of families with low incomes and we were like they call it in in New Zealand Defano. so it's like your family so I grew up with um my mum and dad my mum came from St Lucia in the Caribbean when she was 12 moved to London um in a place called Plasto and grew up there had all kinds of um, problems growing up. She was one of two black kids in her school, including her brother, and every day encountered massive racism, um, but overcame that. And and eventually those friends who used to call her all sorts of names have become, you know, she's got 60, 70 years of friendships now with those same people. So um yeah it was quite tough for my mum but there she was in a, an east end pub where she met my dad in her early um late teens and um yeah mum dad was a a white cockney geezer you know a proper geezer from east end and they fell in love chris and um i'm so proud to say that they have been married for 50 years this year wow. and i went home to london to celebrate that with them so despite all the racism and all the all the you know stacked against them they are very much still in love um two beautiful cockneys um living still where they where I grew up in Leytonstone so um yeah so I grew up with mum and dad um times were tough you know mum had cleaning jobs she worked as a dinner lady my dad was a labourer so he was in and out of work getting work where he he could and um but financially, you know, it, it was a struggle. I remember, actually, I went home recently, Chris, in, in um, August, and I went to the little old corner shop where there was this little Indian lady named Sue. And I used to go to Sue um, every few weeks and uh, with my dog, Penny, and my mum would give me a little note. And on that note, it would have like a list of food that um, I would give Sue. And I would say to Sue, Oh, here, Sue, mum and dad said, can we have this shopping until mum gets paid or dad gets paid? And Sue would give us all the food for free until mum and dad could pay, like, you know, in a fortnight's time. So I actually went to visit little old Sue, who was still in the same place and, <laughs> still gave the same shop. and told her, thank you. So I've got really fond memories of, of Leighton. So financially it was tough, but my goodness, I had the most amazing love in our family. I grew up with a twin brother and my yeah. dad was a massive boxing fan and he called us Joe Louie. So I'm actually named after Joe Louie and I'm my twin brother. Oh, 
Yeah, so I'm Joanne, <laughs> but I'm really Joe. Um, yeah. So, yeah, my dad loved boxing. And I grew up also, we have an older sister named Carla, who was just 16 months older than my brother and I. And we grew up and and despite craziness and chaos around us, you know, people getting in trouble with the police, you know, pregnancies, teenage pregnancies, we all remained, you know, fairly normal um, kids who um, were good kids, went to school, got fairly good grades and came out the other side. And mum and dad always used to say, don't be like us kids, don't scrimp and scrape, you know, make sure that you get an education. Um, we believe you can do anything you want in life, you know, you can do what you want, you can get what you want. And I always really believe that. And I think from a young age, my brother and I were really competitive against each other. And we always used to have running races down our street and with all of our community watching. So from a young age, running was always part of that. From I remember like one of the early ages of seven, just loving running, just everywhere I went, I would run. And we never had a car back then, you know, people forget back in the early 80s, um, we didn't have mobile phones, we didn't have cars. And uh, my dad and my mum, we'd walk everywhere. So we'd walk two miles to the supermarket and carry the bags home. And, and it would be a normal thing to do back in the 80s. You know, mm. nowadays living in New Zealand, we have two cars in our family. And it's like, you know, I look back and I say to the kids, you don't know you're born, you know, when they say, <laughs> oh, are you there yet? And I'm like, back in the day. And I sound like an old kid. <laughs> But, you know, like it was it wasn't it wasn't tough because it's what you did and you walked everywhere. And I, I do believe that because my dad was such a fast walker, I think we got really fit from the fact we had to jog beside <laughs> my dad while we were walking. You know, I'll tell you a quick, funny story. So back in the day, do you remember the Rocky movies, the Rocky franchise? Yeah, of course. Like, yeah, I love, I love the Rocky movies. Yeah. To go and see Rocky. And I remember um our treat was to go to the cinema so my dad took us three to the cinema and we lived in Leytonstone and and the cinema was in Walthamstow and it was a good three mile walk and we actually walked there because we didn't we only had enough money for the cinema so we got to the cinema thirsty as hell and um you know my dad was like I was like dad can I have some popcorn can I have a coke don't be silly you're not effing effing that you're, you know you're lucky to effing go to the effing cinema <laughs> so our treat was to go to the cinema and that's what you did because we actually had no money dad had saved so we could go to see rocky i think it was rocky too but um yeah and i just remember thinking we felt so happy you know of course we were a bit thirsty but it was no big deal we survived without coca-cola and popcorn you know we never had coca-cola the treat was the cinema and I think uh, it's yeah. really good to to know that you know sometimes it's just about one treat not many treats I think you know Absolutely, having yeah. kids like goodness me they're all so entitled sometimes aren't they and I just, <laughs> just rewind and just go back to that time watching Rocky so yeah. yeah I loved my childhood my dad was like amazing I would get my dad to to just paint you know we lived in a council flat we didn't own the house it was rent you know we had to rent it and but my dad, I would say to my dad, dad, can you put a shelf up there? I want to, you know, put my trophy up there or something. And he'd just like get a now, stick it in his mouth, get the hammer, knock up a, you know, knock up a shelf. Or I'd say, dad, can I paint that room red? And he'd be like, go on then, babe. And he'd buy me the red paint and I could do, my sister and I shared a room. We could do as we pleased, you know. And once Carla and I um, painted 
a life-size picture of Bob Marley <laughs> on our bedroom <laughs> wall, you know. It was, like, fantastic. So we had so much freedom, not financial freedom, but everything else and a whole bundle of love. So my childhood was was pretty fantastic, to be honest. Great, great. So sport was running through your life already, with your dad being a big fan of boxing and you were running yes. as well. But music was also a big thing, wasn't it, as when you were growing up? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, we grew up yeah. with um, – mum was always in the kitchen playing her Radio 5, so – We'd come down from upstairs because we, we had a kitchen that was downstairs and then on the second floor was our lounge and the third floor, it sounds like a mansion, it wasn't, it was like a very small terraced house, but council houses are really big, right? Like you can get good spaces in council houses and we'd go down, mum would be playing Radio 5 Live and I remember one summer just listening to um, Come on Eileen, oh I swear Eileen, <laughs> you know, and like those sort of songs still resonate with me and Golden Brown and, you know. It's still it's still a dance floor feeling now, isn't it, at weddings you go to, oh yeah. <laughs> so music was always being played and then upstairs where our living room was, my dad had a record player and, and he would get loads of vinyl from, you know, charity shops and we grew up on vinyl and listening to the chart show, you know, and that's what we did and um, my dad always used to play jazz and so I grew up with the likes of Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan, um, Crystal Gale, the Beatles, Bob Marley, you know, Leo Sayer, you know, you make me feel like dancing, I want to dance the night away. So all of those songs and and I play them now, we've got vinyl here and we play the same songs to our kids and so, yeah, there was one particular Ella Fitzgerald song called A Tisket, A Tasket. And my sister and I would um, do a dance for mum and dad every Sunday. Um, when my dad came home from work really, like, angry or annoyed, he'd put on Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell. And you knew that, you know, stay away from dad. He'd play that song. He loved Meatloaf. So, yeah, so many amazing memories, you know, with that record player. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we used to crank it up it was so good yeah so music was always part of my life you know from very young age we'd be singing and just to see my dad's little face you know being so proud of his kids singing the music that he loved so much so yeah good, good, good. um yeah I've always sung and my sister in fact went and got a record deal when she was 19 um so she was always the singer so when my dad would take us to the pub you know occasionally the his mates would say to my sister and, and I are you the runner or are you the singer because we look quite identical we were almost like the twins because she was only like a year or so older than me and I'd be like no I'm the runner so I was labeled the runner even though I sang back then but my sister oh my goodness her voice is amazing Chris you know she's she's incredible she's she's really got the voice I think I've got the I, I think yeah all these years I've realized that I've always wanted and needed a stage and I think for for a certain amount of time that stage was the athletics arena and mm. then it was the you know the stage for for my voice and then and now it's being a parent you know that's that's my stage the kids are mm. my audience so I, I realize now oh my goodness at 48 years old I need a stage that's when I feel alive so yeah athletics gave me that stage for a while until I broke but um yeah, music yeah. has always been and still is part of my life today. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So tell, tell us about your first, how did you first get into athletics? And where did you first start to enjoy some success and realize you could make a bit of a go of this? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. It's a story that I always tell to, um, I do quite a lot of um, talks in schools, you know, talk about resilience and my journey as an Olympic athlete and I this this story is is quite incredible and I'm happy to share this with you so I went to a school called Connell School for Girls and it was the school where my mum worked as a dinner lady so I would see my mum every day you know um at lunchtime I've actually been to that school I've I've been to that school years ago I think I actually went with you oddly enough and I remember meeting your mum there as as a dinner lady as well yes yeah (laughs) she's a proper cockney eh she yeah, talks yeah. like that and she sounds like <laughs> Louis Armstrong as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she gave us good um, portions, though. It was good. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, she does. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I went to that school and from 11, I realised that on a Tuesday morning I lived for because that was double PE. And I suddenly just thought, wow, this is this is so exciting. And I had a couple of teachers, three teachers, Miss McGoran, Miss Woodroff and Miss Middleditch. Now, Miss Middleditch was this tiny lady with short hair who was crazy as everyone loved it. Even if those kids weren't sporty, everyone lived and loved and looked forward to double P on a Tuesday. And this one particular teacher, uh, Miss Middleditch, um, used to encourage me to, to do sport. And I just found that I was, for whatever reason, I was the best thrower, the best jumper, the best cross country runner and the best sprinter. Like I was just you know ahead of everyone not through really trying but just being um and this this kind of occurred you know 11 12 and you know I was kind of winning the school cross countries and the borough championships in the hundreds and two hundreds and um cross countries and and one day I was at home there was a knock at the door and um I opened the door bloody hell I saw my teacher Miss Middleditch at the bloody front door I was like oh hello what are you doing here and she's like I just need to talk to your mum and I was thinking oh my goodness like my teacher's here you're like wow (laughs) so mum opened the door because mum was always home when I got home from school you know that was amazing and that's what I do I'm always at home you know the kid I always take the kids to school and drop them off and that's how I was raised my mum was always there even though she had all these jobs she'd do that during school but anyway my mum was open the door was shocked to see a Miss Middleditch and Miss Middleditch said Mari I've been watching your daughter and um, she's so talented if it's okay with you I'd like 
to take Joe to the local athletics track because we can't give her any more now. We she needs to go and and get more training, you know, because I feel like we don't want to see that talent wasted. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to take her to the track. It was a Tuesday. And mum was like, oh, my God, that's so kind. Yes, please, if, if you want to. So I got into a car, literally one of the first times I'd ever been in a car. I was 14 years old, got into her car. It was like a Ford Escort blue fancy race car. Felt like a race car. Anyway, we got in. It was kind of a bit bit strange to be in the in a car with your teacher. And she took me to the local track and it was there where my athletics journey started. I met my first coach, a coach named Dave, Dave Belcher. And um, I started training on a Tuesday and a Thursday and a Sunday morning. And that first training session, I remember being 14 and I was racing 11 year olds and my coach wanted to see what I had. So we had 100 metres, started running this 100 metres and these 11 year old girls flew past me. And I just thought, oh, my God, there's kids faster than me. This is ridiculous. So I kind of went home feeling a little bit like I'm not that special after all. But then, you know, mum was like, no, if you want to do athletics, um, I'm going to take you to the track. And so. From that day on, mum took me. We had to take two buses to the track, um, Tuesdays, Thursday evenings and Sunday mornings. And mum, whether whether it was rain, snow, sunny, mum waited until I trained and then we got home on the bus. And I went from being, you know, average to suddenly having all this training. Um, Someone had to lend me. We couldn't afford spikes. Um, so one of the girls gave me her old pairs of spikes and I started running in those. And um, meanwhile, I entered the English school championships in the 200 and the 300 meter hurdles one year. And um, I I won the Essex County Champs and that gave me the, um, the chance to represent Essex. Um, I represented Essex and in that English schools, I... In the 200 metres, I didn't really do much. Catherine Mary dominated. Mm-hmm. And then the following year, I ran the 300 hurdles, won the 300 metre hurdles at the English School Championships. My teacher came all the way to Stoke to watch me. Um, and um, and then I got a letter through the door saying, congratulations, you get to represent England in your first um, international um, event. And um, by the way, the England tracksuit is going to cost 35 quid. And I was like, I was really kind of thinking, I don't want to give this to my mum or dad because there's no way we can afford 35 quid. So mum was asking some mates. Everyone was skint, you know, everyone was skint in Leytonstone. And um, in the end, my teacher bought me the England tracksuit. And I still have it today. And I show that to all the kids that I talk to about my athletics journey. And Miss Middleditch is and remains a really good friend of mine. And her name is Jeanette. I can say Jeanette. And Jeanette is still very much part of my life and our kids life. And um, she came to stay with me in in London when I returned in August. So she stayed with mum and dad with me um in in London I got to spend a couple of days with Jeanette so she if it wasn't I can honestly say Chris if it wasn't for Jeanette seeing that talent in me as a 14 year old I I probably would not 
be well I know I, I wouldn't have had an athletics career because I wouldn't have known the pathway and she showed me the pathway but I also have to thank my my mum in particular for um always taking me to the the track you know Tuesdays Thursdays and Sundays and us finding the bus fare every every week to to get to training um so yeah I used to get you know what it's funny some girls used to laugh at me because I never had the the sporting kit you know there are a few girls who are quite snobby um who were well off that I just used to see them snigger at me when I'd be wearing like dodgy trainers or you know crappy spikes or bad track suits but I just I wasn't really phased because I didn't ever and I still don't ever put any emphasis on the way people look or the way people dress you know my parents have always taught me you it's not what the person looks like it's who they are so it never fazed me but it's just you know it's interesting it was it was yeah you know it wasn't embarrassing for me but I could I could see that they would have they would have really hurt me if I hadn't been the person I was you know by laughing at me so I'm actually yeah I, I just thank my parents for making me resilient and making me proud of myself at a young age as well so yeah so, so you you were doing well at, at, as, as uh, at school and in your early years in athletics but it's not it took a few years until you got through to break through didn't it at the senior level what it was did. going on there what was going on there was injuries. there injuries yeah massive injury yeah. so my first coach Dave basically I overtrained and and when you're a kid you want to do it all and um I I overtrained you know um Dave wasn't that popular with I I ran for Essex ladies so I used to see the likes of Gladys Taylor and and Kim Hager and Sally Gunnell um and Jenny Stout who later became my um race agent um and they were all running for Essex ladies so I looked up to them um my my coach never really liked the the process and so sometimes he would not let me race for them and then I'd end up in a, another race and I was kind of the I was a pawn sometimes to him and I felt like in the end I had to leave and find another coach I spent a lot of time I think running on the hard track at Walthamstow in running spikes running almost giving like 200% every track excuse me, every training session, I ended up, ended up suffering from shin splints. Um, and I don't know if you've ever had shin splints. It's like the worst aggravating lower limb injury where it feels like you've, you've got fractures all along your leg. You know, it was very, very painful. And that was on both legs. Um, and then I, I inevitably, I remember going to the doctors and doctor, my legs are sore. And he turned around and said, we'll stop running. And I was like, that's like telling me to stop breathing. I can't. So, um, yeah, you know, had to then have surgery um, and spent a lot of time off track just boxing with my dad. So my dad would just make us do upper body boxing and I'd take, you know, our dog for a walk and just found that I, I was just the consistency of my training was just up and down for years and years um, during that time from the age of 17 to 24. I'd had um, compartment syndrome, so I had to have partial um, fascia releases on my left and my right, and then it didn't work on my right. So then I had a full fascia release on my right um, and then slowly came back. And whilst that was all going on, I... I did fairly well at my GCSEs and, and got to university and just thought I 
I really need to have a plan B here because I knew I wanted to work in sport. Ideally, I wanted to be a professional athlete. I remember back in 1984 watching the likes of um, Sebco and um, uh, Daley Thompson thinking, oh, my goodness, like, could I dream to ever get to the Olympic Games? You know, watching 1984 Olympics in L.A., just dreaming about that. And so I, I knew from a very young age I wanted to be an athlete. But I thought, OK, I think I was. Yeah, I think not smart enough, but I think I, I was realistic enough to know that this only happens to a few people. And actually, if I can't be an athlete, I'm going to work in sport either as a physio or you know, a coach or or something linked to sports. So I went to university and I remember everyone was going out drinking and clubbing and, you know, I was on crutches and and they'd be like, why are you even bothering to run? Like, you know, and I'd be like, because I'm going to, you know, I want to do something special on the track. And they're like, but you're always injured. And I'm like, I know, I know I am. So I was, you know, studying and still believing I got a part time job as a physiotherapy receptionist at the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead. Um, And then my my training sort of, you know, started to ramp up a bit. And then finally I was able to consistently train um, and get back. You know, I then changed coaches. Do you remember Bruce Longdon? I was okay. kind of dabbling in multi events for a while as well. So I went from 300 hurdles to four hurdles, hated four hurdles, um, hated the technical side of hurdles and then dabbled in some um, multi events. So came forth in the English schools in the heptathlon and, and realised very quickly that the javelin and the 800 were my strongest events. Like I, I was county champion at javelin. <laughs> All right at 17 I think and um and and the 800 and I thought well I need to feel a bit of pain here like I like the feeling of running you know running free and so I decided to specialize in in the 800 and I remember going to the track um at Haringey because my who was then my who was my husband Chris I met Chris when I was 19 um Chris was part of the Haringey Athletics Club he told me to come down I was looking for a new coach I ended up training with John Isaacs who was like like a a massive influencer in in you know the sprints he was like one of the early um really good coaches he coached Tony Jarrett and Marcus Adam and John Regis and I remember going down there Chris and like you know (laughs) he brutal he was brutal went down there and um, I said to John, oh, John, you know, um, am I able to to be coached by you? And uh, I'd like to run fours and eight hundreds. And he looked at me, looked me up and down and um, he said, uh, how much do you weigh? Can you imagine saying that to like an 18 year old girl? You know, <laughs> I was a bit overweight because I'd been trying to get back. And I was like, I could feel my face flush and and he was an amazing coach but that question just killed me and I said oh I think I'm like about nine and a half stone and he looked at me and said more like fucking ten and a half in front of everyone and I was I almost died and I was like okay anyway he started coaching me and um he got me really speedy and he was just John you know like he was I don't know you meet so many coaches they're all they've all got their own way and I think I've learned that, you know, you kind of 
you know with all, all the issues with coaches at the moment you don't know it's you know you just kind of get on with it and it was probably the you know not a great thing to say to a, a you know pubescent teenager mm. to be honest but um I dealt with it and got resilient and got myself really fit and he got me fit and uh trained with John got my 400 time down started running eights and then moved to Jack Bayliss who was a Highgate Harrier who was just delightful middle distance guy and I was finally in a middle distance environment which is what I think I really needed and um you know it was it was just fantastic actually um Jack was just like this awesome you know old school coach and I started training with loads of Highgate Harriers and just had the best time it became a bit I don't know a bit more sociable a bit bit fun and Jack got me running you know from two tens two eights to two oh twos you know Mm. like he did so well with me I was doing like sessions like 400 reps you know with short recoveries like 70 on 70 off and um, I got really fit under Jack and started doing all the all the mileage that I needed to do so Jack was was fantastic you know Um, is this when you because you got to the world indoors didn't you in 2001 was your first yes championship yeah yeah? was that under Jack was it yeah no, that wasn't with Jack. So after after that, I, the, the magic barrier for any 800 meter female is two minutes. And um, yeah. I was kind of there or thereabouts, 202. And then, you know, I'd, I'd through through Woodford Green and Essex ladies, I heard AO was, you know, AO just I used to see AO all the time. He's like this incredible character, you know, loud, the laugh, you know, just his whole demeanor and presence was was something that I wanted to be part of and um so AO started coaching me because I I just I just believed AO could take me to the next to the next level so um I started working with AO in about 2000 2001 and um yeah went to the world indoors um and ran yeah I think two not quite to you know 201 something like that but started training again through um like mainly sprint stuff but AO was was such a a coach who was always seeking knowledge and he wasn't afraid to be wrong he wasn't afraid to ask questions he wasn't afraid to be told no you're doing that wrong do it this way like he was asking he was this open book a really collaborative coach and and I'm a very collaborative open book like I'm Hmm. I'm very you know I I don't yeah I'm just an open person I'm I'm yeah and I felt like AO was yeah that that coach who we we kind of learned the, the the event together in some ways and and he would you know talk to an old school Russian coach, for example, on what to do with a middle distance and he'd collaborate with Charles Van Comeney um, he'd, he'd collaborate with so many different people. Mark Rowlands, who used to be, um, you know, uh, one of the um, UK athletics um, middle distance coaches. And then, yeah, AO was like, you know, incredible for me. And um, yeah, I then broke two minutes with AO, went to Manchester Commonwealth Games in 2002 um, I won the trials, which was like probably my first real lap of honour where there were so many people in the crowd and I got to run um, a lap after being victorious and keeping Tamsin Lewis of Australia and Agnes, um, Agnes 
Samaria, I think her name, um, from Namibia. Anyway, mm. um, yeah, I, I, I then went to the Commonwealth Games and ran sub two minutes and thought, you know, when you run sub two minutes, it was going to be magical, but finished seventh in the final. Yeah, it was uh, It was actually a crazy Very race, that, wasn't it? Really high quality race for Commonwealth Games. I mean, Commonwealth Games are a funny sort of one. Some of the events are really high quality. Other ones are yes. quite average, really, in international terms. Yes. But that was, you had Mishola, yeah. Cummings, the Canadian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Diane Cummings was, was incredible. And we had, obviously, the young girl, Charlotte Moore. I'm thinking mm. that's her name, who yeah, was 16. Yeah. Finished fourth, ran, you know, 159.4 or something. And I ran 159.7 in that race. It was a real mixed race because I went off like an absolute nutter for the first lap. Ran 50, went through 56.4 for the first 400. I mean... How silly is that? You know, if you're going to do that, you, you deserve to pay. You know, it's all swimming. I ran an amazing 700, Chris. If it was a 700 meter race, give me the gold medal. <laughs> but as I say to the athletes I coach now, it's about the last hundred. It's not about the first hundred or the first lap. And yeah, I really paid the penalty, but I was still extremely proud that I'd gone under two minutes for the first time and then after that I was regularly going under two minutes and but it was an unusual race every year up until that year the races had been won in like 201 202 but everyone I think everyone I think I'm right in thinking the whole eight people all went under two minutes in that race in 2002 so certainly mm. the, the the first seven and I was seventh so, um, yeah, an incredible atmosphere at Manchester. I absolutely loved it. And that was, yeah, you know, my, yeah, that was one of my favourite races, even though it was, you know, not the position I wanted to be in. It was still incredible to be part of that. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hmm. But you were also very, very, very strong indoors, weren't you? The next couple of years, you did really well at the World Indoor Championships. Yeah, I was actually a better indoor runner than an outdoor runner. I think because yeah. I'm quite a rhythmical person, like I like rhythm and the rhythm of uh, an 800 metres indoors really suited me. So, you know, AO and I would do this amazing session. I knew I'd be in sub two minute shape when I would do like um 10 200s 30 seconds on 30 seconds off so I'd run them in I'd do them in 29s 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 and so the rhythm for me was 29 seconds and I remember doing one race indoors where I ran sub two minutes on my own just because I had focused so much on the rhythm of 29 seconds for the 200 it just became it just became instinct and and part of who I was to be running at that rhythm. And, and the 200s helped me. Obviously, you don't have wind. It's just you against a, a clock. And, yeah, I, I ran really well indoors. Um, 
Yeah, they should build more indoor tracks. Take <laughs> <laughs> the Olympics indoors. <laughs> yeah, I loved running indoors. I loved it. It was, yeah, I don't know. I think, again, the stage, we talk about the stage. It was more an intimate stage. And I just, yeah, I just come alive when there's a stage. And I think, um, yeah, having the crowd around you, you know, in a more intimate environment really suited my my style of running. Because as well as the modern door championships, you had a good run at Birmingham, once, didn't you? A thousand meter race against Chet Black, was I it? Did. Yeah, yeah, Yolanda Chet Black, who was dodgy, let's say. I can say that. Yeah. I can say that now. She'd already served a, yeah. a drugs ban the first time, yeah. and I, I raced her and, um, yeah, raced quite a few um, Russians, you know, um, who at the time I thought, mm, you know, uh, but again, you just get on with it because you can only control what you can control. Oh. Um, yeah, I was, I was like, that was such a great race because um, Kelly Holmes, first of all, wasn't in the race. So that, that was good for me. Um, but, yeah, Yolanda um, took us round and I was just jogging. And in some ways I gave her too much respect because I thought, it's Yolanda Chetplak, you know, she's, she's ahead. And I sat with her all the way. And, yeah, like, yeah, I, it was one of those where I wish that I had – had a bit more confidence to go past her but yeah it was amazing you know to break the British record um was incredible and it felt so easy you know some of those races where it's effortless that was definitely one Mm. of them where I just couldn't believe it you know um I I absolutely loved it I think it was um yeah just I loved the kit I was wearing you know I felt great in my Adidas kit you know Adidas sponsored me I loved Adidas and um the kit was awesome and yeah I just like everything was perfect that day you know it's not many not many races that are perfect for athletes but that definitely was one of them for me loved it yeah, it's consistent a lot of athletes say that to say when, when they were at their best it just feels it just comes so easy it just flows yeah. and you just feel like you're floating yeah yeah so. and and that was one of my proudest moments you know come from a little girl in Leytonstone you know who had to borrow her first pair of spikes to get in a British record, just like at the time, it was just something, you know, you, when you're, when you're an athlete at the time and all the ex athletes that you've spoken to over the past while, Chris, it's only now you look back. It's only now I look back and I just think I was bloody good. I was an all right athlete, but at the time it's never enough. Like you always, you're looking, you do that race cross a line and then you, it's the next race you never allow yourself to really enjoy that moment because you're looking at the next moment and that was for me it's like yep got a British record now it's you know it's the Olympics and you sort of become yeah you, your mind just leaves that alone and you're mentally fixated on the next race so and I guess you know you can look back and you can think about how well you did and I feel really proud of of that that British record for sure yeah yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Before we get on to the Olympics, then I think the one to pick out is the is the 2004 World Indoors. I remember watching that one on TV, and you ran, you looked absolutely superb in that in that championships. And Mutola won it. Chet Blacker, you've alluded to, was second. Yeah. Um, but you were in, you were in excellent form then, weren't you? You looked great. Well, I was I was in excellent form, but that that morning I woke up. And um, I'd always check my heart rate. So my heart rate is always low, like it's it's 40 it's for now it's 42 beats per minute like it's a low heart rate I have back then it was between 38 and 40 
and um, I'd always check my heart rate first thing in the morning. The day before, 40, like spot on. I woke up that day and I felt really rough. I felt like, oh my God, what's, I don't feel right here. Um, my heart rate was 52 beats, so like a whole 10 beats higher. And I, I felt like I was coming down with something. So I was panicking a bit and I thought, is this just nerves or is this me not feeling well? And I rang AO. I was like, AO, like my heart rate's 52. He's like, OK. I was like, honestly, I don't feel like I have any energy to even run quick. Like I, I feel like I'm completely zapped. I have nothing. And so um, we changed my whole entire race plan that morning based on my heart rate. And the plan was that I would be in last place at the bell and I had to go through a lot slower because I just said there's no way I can go with them, you know, run 57. So it's like, OK, hold back. You're just going to try and run 60s. Whatever anyone's doing, you're just going to hold back and finish stronger. You know, they're all going to go off. You don't go off with them because we know you're going to die. Just hold back. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. So that was my race plan. I just thought I need to focus on that race plan because I just felt horrible. I felt like giddy, sick, dizzy, just like I had some sort of virus and I just was really panicking. So I thought I just need to just focus on that. And I remember, um, was it Bruce Hamilton? Was it Bruce? Um, or was it Mark Rowlands? I remember saying to Mark, um, Oh, what was it? It was something where I knew I was going to win a medal. And I said something to him and he said, don't get ahead of yourself. Jo. I said, no, no. I said, um, said something about I don't know what it was, but <laughs> I can't really remember. But I remember having a conversation. And he looked at me and he said, let's just, you know, let's just take it easy. And I was like, OK. <laughs> um, but there was something really strange. I, I knew that I would. I've never had that before, but I felt at peace. Like I thought, I'm going to run it this way and I'm going to pick up a medal. Anyway, the gun went and everyone flew off. And I was last in the first lap, last in the second, last in the third. And on that fourth lap, the bell went. And um, I felt horrible in those first three laps, but just thought, just you're doing as little as possible. Stay calm. I was really at peace. I was calm. And then obviously with 100 to go, everyone was kind of, clawing a bit and I came through in the last 30 meters you know and I was running faster than anyone and I could not have run that race any differently I believe I had to run it that way and I obviously got one of Ron's medal which was like it was like a gold medal for me because I just yeah it was you know everyone who ever competes they train so hard you know their coaches give up so much you know your parents give up so much. My sister had to change her wedding three times to fit in with my athletic season. Like it affects, <laughs> it doesn't just affect you, it affects all of those around you, you know, and they make allowances for your training, for your competitions. And so for me, just to have something to prove that all this was worth it, you know, was yeah. incredible. So I just, yeah, oh, that medal just means so much to me. And it was like, you know, it's everyone's dream to stand on a rostrum, isn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved winning that medal and, and a bronze. I'll take a bronze, you know. I ran uh, a PB, you know, um, 159.5. Like it, it was the perfect race for me and I felt really rubbish as well. So, um, yeah, that was, you know, yeah, 
2004 was a really good year for me and then it all kind of went a bit pear-shaped after that oh well you got but you did get the olympic vest and you got to the olympics that year tell me about I, that experience yeah yeah, yeah. 2004 uh, was fantastic um i then got after the indoor season um i sort of became a bit of a pin-up for adidas and uk athletics and and people were kind of like going oh you're going to be the um you know olympic girl and and i kind of felt a bit of pressure because suddenly i was doing lots of modeling and you know mm. lots of kind of commercial stuff on top of my training and looking back you know i loved it and you know again it's my stage and i love being center of attention and i loved kind of doing these little modeling jobs and stuff but um the realization of oh my goodness what if i don't get to the olympics and you know all these people have kind of thought I'm going to the Olympics and I suddenly didn't sleep very well I had lots going on and um behind the scenes and I was struggling to actually sleep and I remember um seeing my physiologist Charlie Pedler and he gave me a sleep monitor AO was trying to get to the bottom of it and they classed me as an insomniac <laughs> from the age from sorry from the time of April to July I, I was getting on average two and a half hours sleep a night which is not great when you're training twice a day and you're trying to, you know, run quicker than 159. So I really, really struggled and struggled. And hormonally, I think I was out because later on I realised I had fibroids, which are these um, non-cancerous, um, uh, won't say tumours, but these growths that you get, women get. And, and it actually affects a lot of women and some women don't even know they have uterine fibroids seems to affect a lot more women of color but um, apparently loads of women women have them and they don't know they they have them and i had one that was the size of a shot put inside Ooh. me that okay. I, I i've got a picture i'll show it to you later chris it's incredible but <laughs> <laughs> oh, i look forward to that yeah, <laughs> yeah just, you had <laughs> But, so I had that removed in 2005. So I think hormonally I was, it was a lot going on. When you're a woman, you, women who are listening, you, you hear me, right? You hear me. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> so, um, so I had that going on and um, yeah. And now I think I needed to just qualify. And I remember going to the Olympic trials and obviously the, the great Kelly Holmes, who I completely mm. admire was, you know, an incredible and is you know an incredible woman um she and i were you know the the, the top two in the country at 800s and um you know i had i had not qualified and and um because i was i was i don't know i was either um yeah i was either not ready to race because i was feeling rubbish but I remember having to leave it all on the all on the line at the Olympic trials. I had to run, I think, under 201 or under two minutes. It may even be. I, I don't know. It's been it's a long time ago. But it was I had to run the time and I had to finish in the top two. And that was a lot of pressure going into that event, thinking, oh, my God, I'm already like, you know, I've already worn, I've already done the the modelling for the Adidas kit. Like I'm plastered all over the newspapers, you know, the sun had had um, designed a mouse map with Jay Johnson and I on thinking, oh, my God, you know, before the Olympic Games. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, if I don't qualify, this is so embarrassing. So I remember those pictures, actually. I remember they were, they were quite, um, 
They were a bit raunchy, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't. <laughs> It was almost like you were, yeah, it was a bit, uh, <laughs> yeah. it was very yeah. raunchy, yeah, yeah, um, and, and they were, I think they were what you would call, say they went viral, if they were out today, wouldn't you, those viral, pictures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this was all, bef- you know, like at the, before the Olympics and I, the Olympic trials, and um, anyway, you know, cut a long story short, I finished second behind Kelly Holmes and ran the time, and then you know what happened to my sleep, Chris? I slept eight hours. I slept like a baby after that. So the pressure of the Olympic Games, you know, I'd never been to one. This was my year. I'd done so well indoors and people were expecting me to do well outdoors. So I think the pressure got to me a bit and it really affected my sleep. Plus hormonally, there was lots going on. But I think knowing that I had qualified was was such a relief it was a relief more than anything you know it was actually I was relieved when I crossed the line not even happy just relieved um and then the Olympics itself um they were an inc- I mean oh my goodness like the most amazing games ever for me yeah t- tell me how it compares like I mean I you know I've, I've been to different championships obviously but but the you can go to the Commonwealth Games, you go to the World Championships, European Championships, but the Olympics is not just a st- one step above. It's just it's just massive, isn't it? The yeah. whole it's just an enormous occasion, isn't it? How do you cope with yeah. it as, a, as an athlete? Oh well, as a human, you just feel like you're yeah, you you feel like you're on another planet with these superheroes. You know, you feel you actually. I actually felt like I was surrounded by superheroes. You know, all that like you see so many wonderful humans who are either six foot seven foot tall and you know we used to play the game we'd see like the really tall tall um players and we'd be like basketball and then you'd see like the tiniest you'd be like gymnastics and there'd be all shapes and sizes all races religions cultures and they'd all be in one place and they would be uh, they would be the best in their country and to be surrounded by those people that you'd seen on tv and you'd pinch yourself to think i can't believe i'm here i'm here me you know joe surrounded by these amazing athletes was like this it was like it's almost indescribable but it's it's almost like everything that you've done up till now has been leading to this point i remember you know from the age of 10 watching you know the 1984 thinking all my whole journey up until this point, whatever happens, I'm here. Like I honestly felt like I have reached the pinnacle, like it, it's never going to get better. And I really enjoyed the fact that it was in Greece, you know, where it all started was absolutely incredible. It, it felt, I mean, I'm not religious, but it felt, it, it, it felt, I don't know, like, like it was such an unusual, there was just this incredible energy to be part of that I just felt incredibly blessed and lucky to be there um and I remember in my heat of the 800 you know there's like 50,000 people in the stadium and you know in lane three Joe Fenn you know and people cheering I just felt I felt 10 foot tall I felt like I was floating like it's indescribable the feeling but it, it's a feeling that I will never ever forget you know there are some feelings you know like probably the birth of your kids where you feel mm. 10 foot tall it was like there's a few of those feelings in my life and that was definitely one of them standing on the line um wearing you know my great british olympic kit um with 
people just respecting you in every lane people were giving out dues you know respecting every single person I think everyone there's this immense self-respect self-love you know I think everyone felt lucky to be there and it didn't feel in any way um, arrogant or you know like people were oh look at me I'm at the Olympics everyone felt really humble it was very humbling mm. in some ways you know it's it's kind of really tricky to describe but I felt it was a very humbling moment you know like I just felt like wow this is how cool is this I'm actually here you mm. know just incredible and yeah I, I got to the set I ran the heat I qualified in my heat I think I was third in my heat qualified nice and, and semi-finals got really tough because yeah. uh, it was like first two and then four fastest losers. And I think I was fourth in my semi, didn't quite qualify and didn't make the final. I was 27 years old then. So I was an older athlete because I'd spent so long injured as a junior. Actually, you know, in 2001, I was 24. So um, my career was quite short and I was an older athlete. And I remember crying down the tunnel and there was a lovely Greek older guy. And he's like, it's OK. You have it next year. You have it four years time. And I said, I'll be 31 by then. You know, <laughs> I was like pulling my eyes out. And he was like, this is a bit awkward. And I was just sobbing in the tunnel, just feeling like crushed. You know, oh, absolutely dear. crushed. Just, you know, you dream of it. Like, you know, you dream yeah. of like, I don't know final you know like I did in the world indoors coming through to pick up a medal you know and then all yeah. of a sudden bubble gone that's it you know and four years is a hell of a long time to wait to get that yeah. again so I was absolutely crushed not to make how, how did you um uh experience I mean I was I was a supporter at the time I was just watching it on tv and uh you know fist pumping as I watched Kelly Holmes you know <laughs> knock it out of the park and win double gold um, yeah. but how did you how did you, how, how did you experience that because I mean essentially she was a domestic rival of yours wasn't she did you get the same thrill as as, as a regular British supporter um I did I remember I remember in the holding camp in Cyprus and uh, we're all sitting down for dinner and and she used to train with oh my goodness I can't believe I'm gonna forget his name uh anyway she used to train with uh, an ex-athlete he was her training partner and they came in from the track and she just looked unbelievably fit like she came in she was lean and mean and I just looked at her and just thought oh my gosh like she looks ready to run fast you know she looked incredibly ready to run fast and I knew because you know we'd all be on the track watching each other's session and she ran a 600 in 123 or 124 and I'm like damn like she's gonna run fast I was surprised that she you won the 15 as well because you know there was some amazing uh talent there but I I mean yeah I was I was it was incredible to watch because that was also the the race where we saw our four by one boys win you know so I was on the back straight watching with the British team just incredible to watch and just so happy for everyone you know just so happy to share that amazing moment as well which you know but she could have given me one couldn't she she won two couldn't she have given me one <laughs> I'm not sure it works that way Joe. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but yeah absolutely incredible I never beat Kelly Holmes in my career I wish I had but man she was just a bit too good she's just a bit yeah. too good just, she was good you know, just had that 
that, uh, you know. But, um, yeah, I got pretty close once. Um, again, gave, you know, just gave her a bit too much respect and was almost too polite to not go past, like the same with Yolanda Cheplak that time in the British record race. But, yeah, Kelly is just like, you know, uh, it is incredible. But what's interesting is, you know, the the 800 girls running now, like they are almost yeah. even faster, you know, it's, like it, as a nation, Great Britain is full of such yeah. emerging young talent. It's incredible to see, you know, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it sure is, yeah. So I guess after that, your your career, that was it really, wasn't it? I mean, you did try 1500 metres, but was it injury that just yeah. sort of knocked you on the edge <laughs> think, after that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I went through a, a breakup in my marriage and in 2005 I had a fibroid out and so 2005 2006 was were, were bad years for me I think there's a lot going on uh, on off the track um and you know I, I always think you've got to be a happy athlete you know like in in New Zealand we have this thing called tafara tapafa and it's about your four pillars of well-being and it's you know are your four walls all solid you know, and is that foundation solid? And, you know, there were so many walls of mine that were not strong, you know, in my relationship, in in my health. Um, and, and to be an athlete, you almost have to have superhuman energy to to be able to train as hard as you, you need to. And I think, you know, my marriage breakdown and the fact I, I had to have major surgery to remove this fibroid that honestly looked like a shock but I will send you the picture after this um really took its toll um and then of course when you have inconsistent um winters off it's as you get older because by then I'm knocking on the door at 28 29 Chris and and even though I was you know always a strong healthy athlete um I think mentally I was I was a bit broken and it took me a while and 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 then I left AO's group and and needed a, I needed a change I moved to Lausanne Switzerland to train with a coach named Trent Stellingworth who was Canadian and I trained with his wife um Hillary and it was just it was what I needed I needed to um get away from London um, trained in the beautiful forests in Lausanne and just got fit again and just started loving running again um, and did really try Trent was incredible you know he's, he's, he took a more scientific approach I suppose and my miles came up and I, I just knew I probably needed to train more like a 1500 meter than an 800 meter because I felt like at sometimes the training was just really intense for me and the, yeah, the, the group was growing with AO and I, I just felt like I needed, um, yeah, maybe a smaller intimate group. Um, you know, there was a lot going on. So I, I trained with Trent for, for a year or two and he got me super fit. But then I ended up getting Achilles pain and I couldn't mm. shake the Achilles. And then I just made a really tough decision. And I was working by then. I was working in the marketing and commercial team for UK Athletics. And I remember finally saying, OK, that's it. You know, um, to say those words, I'm retiring as like. Ask any athlete, Chris, it's the worst thing that can ever come out of their mouth, like I'm retiring because it's not like you want to retire, but your body's retiring from you. My body was giving up on me. I didn't mentally want to give up, but my body was saying, no, I can't do anymore. And I remember 
half believing it and thinking, oh, I could go back. And I remember having to get a job, you know, like get a job. I was I was living on my own by then. And um, I remember working for a, a, a marketing firm and I was having to I was trying to secretly get back by myself after telling people, you know, I, I was finished. But I was waking up, doing an hour's run at like 530 in the morning, getting into the office for nine, leaving the office at 630 and then going for another run like eating my dinner at 10 30 and then I just thought this is ridiculous like I I can't do that I'd come off lottery funding you know can I just say um thank you lottery thank you adidas because um without that you know like I look at I look in New Zealand like I'm here in New Zealand and so many athletes don't get funding they're holding Mm -hmm. down nine to five jobs and they are performing so well so we are as a nation in the UK extremely lucky to get all of the funding that we get because you come out here to New Zealand you know and we're so far away they have to get enough money to go and travel to do races abroad and it's I've seen some athletes you know they're holding down big jobs in order for them to realize their dream so it's completely different and I realized I I just needed to get a job so I so I moved to Birmingham and started working for UK Athletics and I remember watching the indoor well being part of the marketing team um for the um Birmingham Grand Prix Mm -hmm. I remember watching Marilyn Okoro run in that 800 and um, I was watching it you know all suited and booted and then I just watched and heard the gun go off and then ran to the toilets and burst into tears because I just thought I'm not ready to retire like this is killing me I'm not over it I'm not over this and I remember just spending about 10 minutes in the toilet absolutely sobbing my heart out feeling like I still wanted to be out there it took a long time for me to yeah for me to let go you know for me to let go and 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 it was incredibly hard as an athlete because you have to adapt to civilian life again you have to be a normal inverted commas person Mm. and uh when you've been you know treated like a you know like a star when you've had everything at your fingertips I remember you know Neil Black the late Neil Black who was my physio he was just you know wonderful physio same with um Kevin Lidlow who was the physio I had from a young age like he is the most amazing physio they both put me back together so many times and you know those those guys are the ones that really keep people's athletics careers going as well you know so I've got a big shout out to Kevin Lidlow who's just an incredible human but um you know yeah it's yeah it's just such a it's such a team effort and um yeah and you kind of feel really sad saying goodbye to those people who have helped you on your journey and it, it it probably took two years for me to get over the fact that I wasn't an athlete anymore it really did and um in some ways you working for UK Athletics helped a lot because I could understand the needs of an athlete but also to be that close to it and not be part of it was really hard as well um but there it was there where I met you know my fiance Glenn who was a nutritionist and you know fell in love and um 13 years later you know we've we've got two kids and Glenn's a nutritionist and so I have UK athletics to thank (laughs) because um (laughs) I do believe in fate you know I do believe that um you know sometimes you think you're on a path that is the wrong path but sometimes you've got to walk along that path to know that actually 
if I wasn't on this path, I wouldn't have met that person. They, you know, so I'm, I have no regrets. Like I love meeting all the people and being part of people's lives. And I think it's, it's just um, like, I'm such a happy person, Chris, like right now I am so happy. Like I'm, yeah. I'm really happy. I'm a happy person. And I feel really lucky to have had an athletics career and it has gone full circle because now I'm coaching, you know, I'm coaching yeah. little distance athletes now. It's it, it's very obvious how happy you are, Joe. And it's um yeah I am. What I was, was going to ask you about was the uh, you touched upon it there. The um mental health is such a is now an issue that we, we talk about much more openly now. And a few athletes yeah. have spoken to have, have touched upon this. How once they did finish, they found that transition to city <laughs> streets to, to normal life really really hard. And there was no yeah. uh or, or, often, or often careers ended um because of injury, but not 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 from choice um. Yeah. And people have found, you know, that actually did affect them quite, affect their mental health in, in quite in quite a way. It took them years and years to adjust. Um, so I guess what I'm asking you is, you know, should there be more support for athletes and as as they go through their careers in this area? Hundred percent. And yeah, I think I was, you know, there's so many athletes that give a hundred percent, just throw it because you have to, you have to give track and field and and sport, not just track and field, every sport that you want to achieve at the highest level you have to give 100% and I feel that when and there there you know there have been athletes to come before me and after me and and now there's a lot more athlete support um and athletes yeah like um athletes um oh what yeah there's a lot of support now for athletes in their transition but back when when I was competing and even the generation before you'd finish your sport and then what would you do you'd either coach or you you know you wouldn't really you may not have any qualifications Mm. um where do you go you know you either become yeah you either become a bit bitter by the fact that systems let you down and I know plenty of those who are a little bit bitter that they've just been left to defend you know um for themselves but it is really tough. And I remember talking to a good friend of mine, Stuart McMillan. He's the CEO of Altus, a, a massive world training centre over in um, the States. And um, back maybe seven, eight years ago, he said to me, can you write me a blog? Because he was writing blogs. I said, what about? And he said, just just write it on, you know, like your life after athletics. And I'm like, but you know, I'm a mum of two, like nothing, it's boring, like nothing's, nothing's going on, I, I, you know, he's like, well, just, I was like, oh, I'm not sure I can, Stu, and then two in the morning, about a month later, it all came to me, and I wrote down this, all the things, you know, and it was almost like therapy for me, I wrote down my story, and um, this blog went viral, and I think about 150,000 people have read this blog, and it really resonated with not just athletes, but with women who had had amazing careers and then stopped to have babies and then had to adapt to civilian life either as a mother or as a non-athlete and and I I would recommend everyone just writes down a blog about themselves because it was the therapy that I never had and it's interesting because what I really think should happen and, and I will say this is after I came off funding because I wasn't running well, because I was injured, because I was going through lots of stuff off the track, you also lose the funding to, and the right to have a psychologist. And that's 
what I think you really do need and to see a psychologist you know when you you need to when everything's going well you know when everything's going bad that is when I think athlete services need to to give I don't know a transitionary period for an athlete to work with a psychologist for a period of six months so they can offload what they need and to get real advice because I honestly felt a bit let down that I didn't have a psychologist at the end of my athletics career it was really it was really crushing for me and not to talk to the person that I opened up to for years and for them suddenly not to be there was like you know oh my god like they're not there for me now and you you do feel you do feel quite crushed and you do feel um isolated and alone and like you were used in some ways you know like it's it's really you do feel like all of those just, emotions I mean quite sort of dropping off the conveyor belts aren't you really <laughs> yeah it's like that isn't yeah, it yeah that's it and so I, I honestly feel that there needs to be a mental health um support when people are nearing the end of their athletics career because um that's when they're going to need all the support you need you need that when things are going well you tap in and out of the support, but you don't really need them. When things are going bad, that's when, you know, the support, especially with uh, psychological um, mental health services, do need to be out there to, you know, for you to land, you know, for you, for them to have an open arm around you. I think it's really important. And that would be the one service that I think is the hardest you know, I think that's mm. what you need. You need you need that psychologist to say, you know, how are you feeling? Where do you want to go? What are you afraid of? You know, what what can you look forward to? Because it just ends like that, you know. And and I mm. think in life, everybody needs a purpose. And when you don't have a purpose, you feel we're humans. We have to have a purpose. And I think not having a purpose anymore to get up is really tough if that's your mindset and you know my purpose was to be the best athlete I could be to run the fastest 800 and to win a medal and to go to the Olympics and when that purpose is no longer it's really hard to go well why am I here I've done this for so long I've been doing this for like 25 years what now it's really really hard and some athletes are lucky and I think more and more now athletes are recognizing that they do need a plan b and you actually need to simmer away with that plan B before plan A ends, you know. And um, I would always recommend every athlete who's competing now to just have something other than other than your sport. Like for me, I could turn to music when things weren't going well and I could, you know, play guitar or sing. And I had that outlet. But you need something that you don't need to measure that you just do for fun. And I think as long as you have at least that one thing. Um, you need some downtime and you obviously need your family and friends around you. And they are there, but the professional services, psychologist, 100 percent. OK, great. Yeah, great. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. I, I just want to ask you about a couple of um, you've talked about well, a couple of your sidelines, really uh, modelling and uh, singing. So take the modelling first. Um, let's be honest, Joe, you're a bit of a looker, aren't you? It takes one to know one, but you're a oh. bit of a looker, Joe. <laughs> uh, I'm 48 I'm just you know I'm still trying to rock it but <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. tell, tell me about some of the some of the modeling gigs you've done that um, stand out for you oh uh, well one of um one of one of my biggest 
I think working with Stella McCartney at the London 2012 Olympic kit um, wow. design. So um, yeah, she had requested me because I'd done the kit launch for 2004. This was way up. This was when I was, I didn't know this at the time, but I went off um, to somewhere in Northwest London, um, just off Notting not Hill and went to this big studio, met up with Stella McCartney, had to wear like the bra and the knickers and do a jog on the spot to make sure the knickers weren't, you know, you weren't wearing dental floss. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then she'd measure me and because I was like the, the, the average size for an athlete. And, and at the time, I didn't even know I was actually pregnant <laughs> in that in that modelling. I was like two months pregnant or something. I didn't even know. But um, I met Stella McCartney. That was like, hold on a minute. Let me pinch myself here. I'm working <laughs> with Stella McCartney here, which was just amazing. She was so down to earth, like, you know effing and blinding and just you know just just a normal girl and I worked with her team and had to give feedback on what it felt like you know is this practical for an athlete is this the right material is this the right texture and so it's a bit of more of a collaborative project where I actually had a say as an athlete and that was absolutely incredible um yeah, just just a few, you know, like lots of Adidas shoots that were really good. Probably one of the best ones was, you know, working and being part of the big Channel 4 football documentary with the Josie Marino, the special one, and meeting David Beckham and all those footballers and my hero, Patrick Vieira, because I'm a big Arsenal fan. And yeah. uh, who's top of the league at the moment, Chris? <laughs> well, uh, as we put, if we put this uh, podcast out in a month or two, I couldn't really uh, say. But uh, as we, as we uh, speak, as of today, it's Arsenal. <laughs> Arsenal are top of the league, and that is my team. Why is it a lot of athletes support Arsenal? It's, I don't know what that is. Like. Well, I followed Ian Wright from Crystal Palace because Ian Wright okay. is like he is the ultimate. I love Ian Wright, but but yeah, I got to meet. I got to meet. Um, Patrick Vieira and you know all of those guys and and just like that was one of the the most special kind of modeling assignments where I did a shoot with them and and obviously the Olympic kit launch but I guess since then like even in New Zealand here it's been really nice I've been doing a bit of modeling here as a sort of you know mum mummy sort of model and that's Mm. been really really nice so um again it's my stage like I you know I kind of yeah I think if you're collaborative with with uh you know the the directors and with the film crew or camera crew you can they'll ask you back if you're a nice person you don't have to look like blooming Cindy Crawford you know and I I don't look like Cindy Crawford but I think if you're just a nice person and you're collaborative and you work and you try and you're all trying to get the best result then I think that's why I've probably I'm still modeling today because I'm I'm trying to work to get the best result and and I've just done a a, a TV advert for Tresemme because of my curly hair which is quite cool I'm like I'm oh, a mum right. I'm a 48 mum you, know <laughs> you know but yeah it's like I'm just like pinching myself going okay I'll do it it's been really it's fun it's fun good. you know good good yeah I've got I've got a cheeky question for you and I've uh uh, uh I'm not going to use any names here, but I did. I did hear a rumor, Joe, that a very famous footballer actually had a, had a, made a move on you. On, oh on my assignment. God, Chris! <laughs> you don't have, you don't have to say yeah. You don't have to say who it is, but uh, just I, I heard a rumor 
That's all. And I've never asked you this. So is, is the yeah. rumour true? It is it is true, and I'm not going to say the name, but they somehow <laughs> managed to get my phone number and uh, okay. tried to chat me up on a few texts, and I was not having any of it. And I'm like, I don't care who you are, I'm not having it. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Interesting. Did you hear that? That's so funny. Yeah, we'll leave that one there then, shall we? Let, yeah. Let's talk about your, your singing now and um, yes. your singing career. There's a band called The Business you're with, isn't it? Yeah, so my sister and I, my sister's like the most amazing singer. We we mm. joined the business when we were, well, I was 19. This was when I was kind of spate of injury. So I just needed to, you know, just just be within the environment of music because I just love that. And that's where I go when I'm down or, you know, I turn to music. Um, yeah, we were in a rock covers band um, run by a really great character named Steve May and his brother and and we were part of an eight-piece band so Carla and I would sing at weddings um 40th birthday parties seemed to be our go-to and we'd be the little backing vocalist and we'd be like wearing little white dresses and trying to matchy matchy and um it was it sounds sounds like the um what's the what's the film called the um Blues Brothers not the Blues Brothers the the Irish film um what are they called now the cause not the no. cause that the, the, the irish yeah, film irish, irish the, the, do you know what i'm talking about the irish no. the irish uh, oh the uh, oh the irish band the film what are they called again oh they do that song to try a little tenderness the commitments the commitments oh the commitments yes we <laughs> yes. used to do that one we used to did do you? that one. <laughs> okay, we did yeah. honestly the the oh honestly the set list was incredible. We'd do Rolling Stones, we'd do Macy Gray, we'd do Fleetwood Mac. Um, we would do like proper good old fashioned rock covers. And we were really popular. We were rocking all over Essex, doing lots of gigs. Our biggest gig was probably in Brighton. Um, we did the big gig there, um, at Brighton, you know, the big Brighton Hotel Um, and we loved it you know and then my sister moved to Holland because she met her boyfriend who's now husband and they lived in Holland and then it was all down to me and I was like but I'm the runner I'm not really the singer and then I think that gave me the confidence to really sing out and I think when my sister left I sort of stepped up a bit you know because I was she was always the singer Um, and then I really enjoyed gigging with them and then obviously my running uh, was progressing and I was training a bit more and then in the end I just I couldn't do both it was impossible you know because we were doing gigs at like seven and then time we were packing up was three in the morning and then I, you know it was like not really conducive for running so I had to sadly part with the amo- amazing guys Greg, Mike, Steve, um, yeah um, Jim we had two Jims, two Mikes, Steve and uh um yeah and uh yeah steve mike yeah the the band were amazing and and i think they're still going and um i haven't seen them for years but like steve was like such a good front man like he was we had such a laugh with those guys 13 years i was in that band but now i'm actually um a friend of mine a guy named warwick and i are are we're practicing because we're going to start gigging. He's an amazing musician. He plays guitar and keyboard and um, we try and meet. It's been really tricky because he's a father as well. We're trying to meet every two weeks and we're 
collaborating and some with some really good songs so we're going to start gigging again which will be really good um okay. so yeah you know I still sing and I, I absolutely love it I you know at, at here where we live we live it's very suburban you know it's it's, it's like Ramsey Street you know I kind of <laughs> live on Ramsey Street but every year um it's lovely totally. so who, who, who are you on Ramsey Street then are you are you Mrs Mangle or or oh, Kylie <laughs> you're Charlene are you <laughs> <laughs> Where are you on the spectrum? Are you Charlene or are you Mrs. Mangle? <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm probably in the room. I don't know. I don't know who I am. Not Mrs. Mangle. Give me a, give me a <laughs> I'm teasing, Joe. I'm teasing. <laughs> but yeah, we sing. I sing every year. We have about 100 neighbours and I do all the Christmas carols every year. Oh, lovely. <laughs> it's really cute. Yes, yeah, so we've got a lovely community here on Ramsey Street. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll always sing, Chris. I'll always sing. <clears throat> good 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 and tell me about you before we go tell me about uh, you're still involved in athletics aren't you out there I am so yeah I, I got um a lovely there's a friend of well he's someone at the track he invited me for a coffee he asked me what I was doing I said oh, I'm probably gonna try and get a little part-time job and he said why don't you coach with me and I'm like what are the hours 15 hours a week I'm like that's perfect for me so now I work with a uh, an ex-athlete, ex-Commonwealth Games 1500 metre runner, a guy named Paul Hamlin. I think he ran 3.38 for the 15. And he and I coach, um, I'm sort of like a, a lead coach for the 11 to 14 year old squad. And they do mainly sprints and a bit of everything. They're called the X-Squad. I work with them here in um, Auckland on the North Shore four times a week. And then I work and support Paul's middle distance squad. And we've got, can I say, we've got some really good emerging 800 metre talent. So I'm working closely with a couple of the girls there. They're like 14 to 16 and they're running like, you know, they're going to be running 205s, 206s this year. So um, I'm just starting their journey with them. And I'm absolutely like I'm at my happy place at the track, you know, so I'm there almost every the day. I'm not there is Fridays. I'm there every other day. Um, just you know I feel like I'm running around like AO with his whistle trying to do the last <laughs> rep with all these athletes you know like AO lives yeah. on because I'm coaching like him and and um, I am absolutely loving it but I'm I've got my own sort of little style but there's a lot of AO I see in me as a coach and it's it's honestly I, I am I feel that's why I feel really happy I went home saw my parents gave them a big hug saw my brother and sister and all my friends and and now I'm coaching and the kids are thriving at school. <clears throat> Glenn's doing really well at his job. And so I feel really happy. I'm in a really happy place. You know, life is good. And, and at the moment, life is really good. And I just every day, eh, every day you just go, thank you, you know, because um, I do feel really like happy at the moment. And it's so good to be on the track helping because I've been there, I, I think it's really nice that I can honestly give a, a valid opinion when I feel like, you know, an athlete might be overtraining or needs to take a rest or needs this session. So it's but I try and be as collaborative as, as possible. But and, and Paul and I really work well together. We've got a really good group um, at Bayes Athletics. Um, and, yeah, we've got some really great talent here in New Zealand. So, um We've got a big event coming up called the Night of Fives, 
and um, we showcase that event every year. So it's weird because our athletic season is in December for the for the schools, and then they peak again for the nationals in March. So it's kind of like a double season, really. Um, but just getting used to that. And um, I've done some commentating as well, Chris. Oh, do you remember oh, Steve Landell's? You know Steve. Yeah, I do. Oh, he's out there, isn't he? Yeah. 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 So, so he used to live in Kensal Rise when I used to live there, and I never knew. And now he lives on the. Sh- well, he just lives about half an hour away. So I've met up with Steve a couple of times, and he asked me yeah. to do some commentating. I've done yeah. one, and, and it was quite popular. So I'm going to be doing some more commentating, which is so funny. Oh, so great! That's, that's top me bird on the end of the microphone. But <laughs> <laughs> so like Londoners it. out there on the microphones. Yeah, yeah it's oh, really good. Yeah, you need to come out here, Chris. Oh, I'd love to come out there. I'd love to. I've never been to New Zealand. A big regret of mine. I did have a year in Australia, but I never actually got to New Zealand. (laughs) Sorry? It takes a whole day to get here, but it is worth it once you're here. Yeah, well, I'll I'll pop in to see you and we'll have an 800 metre session, shall we? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Deal. Oh, Joe, it's been lovely chatting with you this uh, this last. It's flown by an hour and a half. It's been lovely chatting to you. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, it has been like getting blood from a stone talking to you as it always is. <laughs> no, it's yeah. been terrific. It's been terrific. And it's wonderful to see you looking so well and obviously you know, doing so well and obviously so happy as well. So, yeah, thank you. Th- th- thanks so much for your time, Joe. Thanks, mate. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Joe. She is always such great company. Um, not long after we had the conversation, though, she followed up to say to me she was mortified She'd forgot to mention John Dawson, uh, a songwriter she collaborates with and one of her best friends. So to play us out, here's Joe and John's latest song, Rescue Me.
Thanks for listening to Athletics Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.